This is Confessions of a Book Collector. I'm your host, David Headley, and I will be exploring all aspects of publishing and book collecting, interviewing best-selling and upcoming authors, and sharing insights on books both old and new. Welcome back to Confessions of a Book Collector. Today I am joined by, I think, the most wonderful, impressive, kind people in publishing, and they are Nikki French. And when I say they are Nikki French, everybody in publishing knows that Nikki French is Sean French and Nikki Gerard. And if you didn't, I'm sorry that I've just given you that much of a <laughs> Welcome. Oh, well, uh, honestly, nice thank you very much for having us here. I have known you for a long time because I loved your first novel and I, I collect your books and I have that first edition that William Heinemann published with the cutout, yeah. the memory game. And it was one of those books I thought, how do you keep this book pristine? It would tear easily. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. And then that's when I started covering books in plastic. I think it's so very... responsible for that. I think I think it's caused a lot of grief to people because actually, you know, you know, because it it just almost always gets a little tear. But it yeah. is a thing of beauty. That yeah. is lovely. Yeah. I think it's one of those things, do you know the famous thing with... Um, going to the title of, our, of another of our books blue monday but not our blue monday then when new orders when they did that they was one of the it's a, i think it's a best-selling 12 inch single of all time but they mispriced it so they ended up losing money on every so, <laughs> so expensive the design that every copy they sold they lost a bit of money right. and i think the i think the cover of that book was actually they probably i think heinemann probably lost a tiny bit of money every time someone bought it it is a beautiful book and yes well i started book selling you know, Goldsmith Books started as a company in 1999, but Daniel and I had started selling books prior to then. We set up a website and we'd started selling one or two books. And but you came, you were published in 1997. That's right. Yeah, Sean's the one for dates. Yes, 97. Yeah. yeah, it was 97. And I think Goldsmith Books, as a partnership launched in 97 so your book came out and so we had kind of I love that so we've accompanied each other yeah we it's have very nice but we have and you have each been other. massively supportive of Goldsboro yeah. both of you I mean you have come every year year in year out and well thank you for that because you've been one of the biggest supporters of Goldsboro well you've been and you've been yes, our supporters like, well, so thank you for that person. you keep writing great books I mean how do you keep doing it and and do you do you enjoy it because it's Publishing has changed massively, right, in the last... So pu- publishing has changed massively, but the act of writing hasn't changed hardly at all, has it? You still have to go away by yourself or together, in our case, in a little room. And kind of whether you're successful or not successful, you just have to be alone with yourself writing the story you have to write. And you say, how do we keep on doing it? I mean, one of the things that we've absolutely pledged each other, and we keep renewing that pledge, as if it's a marriage vow, really, that we just... If there comes a time where it feels repetitious or it feels like a formula or it feels too easy or it doesn't feel like an adventure or if it doesn't feel like fun, then that's the time to stop. That's, that is amazing. That's like for any relationship, right? Because if it's yeah. no longer yeah. fun, what's the point? What is the point? Absolutely. Well, except for the, I mean, of course, one of the things one sometimes feels that relationships, you know, some relationships go on because people, you know, it's not fun anymore, but they, people can't. So you can't, can't say it's not working. Yeah. And I think also we all, you know, going into dangerous territory, I'm sure we all know there are some writers who feel that the, the well has gone dry, you know, and I think one's got to, we, you know, we would stop. If we, if we suddenly thought we'd just been, it's just been, grind, we're grinding it out, then we'd, you know, do something else. And 25 books on? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, what we, the very, the first book, The Memory Game, 
that we wrote just as an experiment. You know, when I say just as an experiment, you know, because we were both we were both journalists, and we thought, could we just as could we try and write a book together? You know, we had no there was no plan even to be published, no plan to be Nicky French and have a career. And I think the surprise of that book, I think, once we were about halfway through it, we kind of suddenly thought, actually, there's something. It feels like there's something else happening, and there's something about when we collaborate. And I definitely find feel that, that my, about myself is I, I, I suddenly actually can write in a different way. So, somehow when I become, when I put on the Nicky French mask, I can write in a way I can't write on my own. And that's very mysterious. And I think it was because of that. I think we've, I think we've found that, that actually working together, we became something different. And it's, it's, there's something odd about that and exciting. And I'm fascinated by that because when you read your books, as a literary agent, as a reader of books, I read all of the time. And a bookseller I've been reading for many years there is no sense within your book that there is a different voice within your writing. You write as one voice. We do, we do. So it's so we so when we write separately, we have this different voice, and when we write together, it's not that I'm writing as Nicky Gerrard and passing it to Sean, who's putting as much Sean French as will fit into it as possible, and vice versa. It's that we're trying to write, or we are writing, into the voice of Nicky French, this this writing that we've created between us. And if it wasn't that, it wouldn't work. If it was just like a compromise between two writing styles, or if it was a battle of egos, a battle of voices, then we couldn't have done it for one book, let alone, as you say, 25 <laughs> books. Well, I mean, I, an astonishing number, but I, yeah. I have to say, I love them. And you've written one series. Would, would you go back to writing a series or are you happy writing your standalones so so we never meant to we never envisaged writing a series we wrote 12 standalones all in the first person um and then we when we had the idea we we wrote a series because we thought about Frida Frida Klein oh, yeah. who and and when we thought about her this therapist who doesn't want to be a detective she wants to be a th- she wants to be a detective of the mind not out in the world and we dragged her out and when we thought about her she just needed more than one book to reach the end of her because she wasn't going to divulge herself in fact we decided she needed eight books um if we if we came across an idea that needed to be a series then we would write a series, but when we we don't write police procedurals, no, no. so we can't write. There's not there's not an obvious way for us to write a kind of traditional series. Well, we did, we did this mad thing, of course, with the Frida Klein, where we, which looking back on it, what were we thinking? Is we when Blue Monday was published, we said, oh, this is the first of an eight book series, which is so such a stupid thing to do because <laughs> if it, you know, I am then to name them after days of the week because yeah. if we'd suddenly got to Wednesday or something and found that readers didn't really respond to it and we we got sick of her. It would have been it would have looked so pathetic to have just <laughs> to have sort of stopped to Wednesday. So you hadn't planned the seven books at all. We, we did, know, no, we, had, we, we absolutely had, had planned well, eight, it. So yeah. no and the other mistake I mean that was a mad thing we did is we named the series after days of the week. But yeah. in fact there were eight books in the series, which doesn't make sense at all. And and at the end of the seventh book, the Sunday book, we didn't have a big sentence right under the final words of that book saying there is an eighth book so there were lots of readers who were yeah it's on a cliffhanger so people, there was some very angry, angry messaging <laughs> if i'd known it was going to end like this I would, I would never have started reading them in the first we, place we absolutely so, yeah. knew it was going to be eight books and yeah. we knew what the overarching story was that would run kind of be lit like a fuse in blue monday and then run through all the following seven books and kind of come to a climax in day of the dead so we did know that we always knew it was going to 
be a finite series. And let's talk about the new book, because this is obviously why you've come to talk to me today. We want to promote the favour. Whose idea is it that comes up with these these big high concept plots? Oh, they're all they're all my ideas. I mean the thing we did this is again, this was never planned, but looking as we sort of became Nikki French and found ourselves, you can you write the books you have to write. And, and the things that really frighten us are the things that come out, out of just ordinary lives where something goes wrong. And and the and we and the inspirations we have, it doesn't tend to be like reading about some horrible crime in the newspaper or, you know, or in, some, in a book. It's more just having constantly kind of what if conversations. What if this happened? You know, what if this, what if this thing went wrong? For example, something like, what if you were in a brief relationship, you split up with this, with this man and he wouldn't leave? And that, and we thought that would, you know, we, that would be a really fright, you know, it sounds like a rom-com, but it would be actually really scary. And in the case of the favor, We've just been having a conversation for years about if someone comes to you, if someone is a, someone who's important in your life and they come and say, could you just do me a favor? And do you, do you in a way just have to say yes before they, you even know what the favor is? And we, the thing, the, the weird thing about this is that we, First of all, we couldn't agree. We both had different views. And it was kind of out of that argument, whether you unconditionally say yes, whether you say, well, you have to tell me what it is first. And 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 we now can't remember who said which. Actually, I mean, <laughs> so we, dis- we now disagree about what the disagreement was. But it was kind of out of that disagreement that we wrote The Favour. And we couldn't, we did, we put off writing it for many years because we couldn't find the right structure for it. And then we thought about having this our main character who's a young woman called Jude and she, she is her life is on track she's like a good girl she's always been kind of in control of her life she's a she's a she's a doctor she's got a fiance they're about to buy a house together she just knows where she's going in her life which is very dangerous in a Nicky French yes. novel she's also quite naive Let's... she's naive yeah, she, she is and she makes up terrible anyway out, out of her past comes Liam who's a bad boy who's never been on track with whom she had the, her first passionate love affair which you've had a glimpse of in the kind of prologue to the book and he just says Will you do me a favour? And she doesn't do the sensible thing of saying, hang on, what is it? She just says, yes. yes. And it's a mistake. <laughs> and it's, uh, from that, her life unravelled. And in fact, a lot of Nicky French novels, when we think about them in different ways, they're about taking lives that feel carefully constructed and in control on solid ground. And then it just takes one or two wrong steps or one accident and you suddenly find you're in a different world and I think people recognize that we you know everyone is a few steps away from disaster from trauma from catastrophe yeah and I think you both have done that incredibly well and when I think back to how many people are writing in what I call the Nikki French area I would say that you started this there's a lots of people doing it now but I would say that Nikki French were right there at the beginning of putting ordinary people in these. I mean, lots of people have done it before, but I think that you really captured that market. It is um, that it is what we it is. It's kind of intimate horror, isn't it? It's about the horror of everyday life. I mean, we always say that no one is normal and no life is absolutely self, and nobody knows anybody completely. And and that sense that. You know, it's like anti-romantic in that way, that you can never know anyone. You can never actually know yourself 
properly. And when terrible things happen, you have just different glimpses into yeah. your relationships and into your own heart. Yeah. I mean, there is a weird way, I think, in, I think people think because you collaborate, you must, you know, you know everything about each other. But I, I think in a weird way, collaborating and being sort of mi mixing our imagination so kind of intimately for years, over the years, you suddenly realize how you don't know other people, even, you know, because I think we're quite mysterious to each other. After I mean, the, one of the great things about writing with Sean is the more I write with Sean, the stranger he seems to me. <laughs> he is weird. He is weird. And then that is really exciting. And that's what's exciting about being alive and being human, isn't it? Is that Absolutely. you never get to the end of somebody. I, mean, I think it's almost not yourself. a coincidence that the fact that, that, you know, here we are married and writing together and we're just we're together all the time. But one of our themes is you do not know. The, pe the people you should, almost should be scared of are the people you're really close yeah, to. Yeah. And, and again, that's both, I mean, for a start, it's something that we feel, but uh, that, that we feel. But I think that maybe just struck a chord with readers and people, because we all feel it. We know, we either it's happened in our own life. Think of the, all the people we know who, the people who, be, you know, just to take the subject of, of being in a relationship, number of people who've been in a relationship for years with someone and they completely trust them and they suddenly discover they've been being lied to you know, for years and someone's had a, doing another life and they've been betrayed by someone who they thought was just absolutely. And we just, you know, we, when you just hear about it and you see it around you and it's, it's just endlessly fast. That seems to me more frightening than there's a terrorist on the loose yeah. because, because it's, because it hits you in your most vulnerable place. Well, you do it very well in, in, in the favor and you make us all wonder who we should help and never agreed to go and do something with someone without maybe checking with other people first because or, <laughs> yes because things happen to people don't they but it's, well, yes, things don't, i mean in a way but i think that jude acts with generosity yes and i think the other thing she does is she she agrees to the favor and then she lies about it to her fiance and then one line it's mm. just like that kind of you know step by step and then she's on this kind of careering out of control and her life just completely falls yeah. apart but can i, but can I say i think nikki this might be irritated this is because we, we drew a fine line talking about this book because it's, it's certainly you know they're always in different books are things that you worry about giving away so nikki's okay. already looking nervous okay so you need to, so i'm going to say this no but <laughs> i gives away plots of everything no, so. it's not a spoiler alert because but what i'm saying is i think one thing we're always talking about apart from the story and the atmosphere and the setting is about you know, the main character and how do people feel about what, what, how, what will the reader think of them at this stage? You know, cause if there's a, there's a, there's a dangerous thing. And I feel this a lot, you know, you're, when I'm reading something or watching a film, sometimes it's interesting when you think, Oh, they wouldn't do that. Well, I don't believe that. But at a certain point you just sometimes think, Oh, I'm just, I don't, I'm, I've, I'm done with this. So the, the problem with the, the issue with Jude, of course, she makes this decision right at the beginning and the, and the reader clearly the reader is thinking, why the hell are you doing this? And it is a big question, and and she does behave crazily, and we there's a kind of answer to that question. That's all I'm going to say. But, uh, that, that absolutely is. But and then and, I, and so, but I, you know, don't, and it's quite important not to say what the answer yeah, yeah, what yeah. the answer is. <laughs> but uh, but I think she she is. But I think also, I think one of the things, and that, something also that we believe in our own lives is. You've got to make, you do, you've got to do mad things occasionally in your life. You cannot just do the rational thing because we sometimes, I mean, one of our books, I think the first book that was a sort of, it was a, quite a big success was Killing Me Softly, mm. which came completely out of our own lives, you know, which, which may sound strange since it's about someone meeting a murderer. But, but <laughs> I mean, because when Nikki, when Nikki and I met and Nikki had two little children and we just, 
fell in love and moved in together straight away. Absolutely, you know. And we, and we were suddenly a couple of years later. We were talking about that was insane. We just didn't know enough about each other, you know. And we were both in different ways taking huge risks. But you know, it turned it turned out all right. But we just didn't. And so we thought, well, you could turn that into a thriller, yeah. you know. Someone who ju- you just fall in love with someone. It's absolutely passionate. You've never experienced anything like it. And then. And then there you are suddenly married and you realise there's something wrong with this person. And, you know, and so, you know, then, then she becomes, Alice becomes a kind of detective investigating her own husband. You know, I think it's sort of interesting to, you can turn anything into a thriller, you know, anything in your life that's, you know, that something, the most positive thing, you can just turn the dial and it can become scary. That's right, because it's everyday things that you take and then then make it dark. But Killing Me Softly was, yes, it was your breakout book, really. I remember selling hundreds of copies at Goldsboro. I remember meeting you for the first time when you came to sign it because we sold out and we tried to get more and there were no more. (laughs) There was reprints, but there's no more first editions because you had really taken off. I think the title, the package, everything about that, but also the story really did. Well, you know know where the title came from. It was because that was also the first, it was was in typescript. It was bought to be made into a film, you know, and by this American company. And they said the one thing, it was had a completely different title and said, you they they said we're not going to publish the, we're not going to buy the rights if it has that title because they said because they said it thought sounded too much like like a like a sitcom so crazy it was called crazy for me which was like a sort of there was a, there was a tv comedy at the time called right. called crazy for you i think was well, anyway so so we had so we so we were struggling struggling to find a title and uh, and we went out for dinner with my family because it was my it was my dad's 60th birthday and we everyone got quite drunk and we halfway through we were saying we're desperately trying to find a title title for this for this book and and we were just doing joke titles and then one my youngest brother and his wife they went home got even drunker and then at and then at about a about one in the morning they sent us this joke email full of the reeled off drunkenly these joke titles you know kind of they call things like kiss me kill me and things like that. <laughs> i remember i still got it so i copied it somewhere and one of them in the middle one of their joke titles was killing me softly and we thought we looked at him thought actually that's really good and, and the moral of this is get, get drunk. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, but, I mean, as you're saying, titles, you know, there, there's lots of things that I think, I think some things like reviewers don't pay attention to. Things like, I think names of characters are really important. And the titles of books are just. It's so important. Well, I agree with you. As a bookseller, I will tell you, I see books come in all the time, and I think that's such a terrible title because it really doesn't say anything about the book. Yeah. Mm. It's a terrifying thing, though, for for an author. You can spend years writing a book, and then the title or the cover, and then people just don't buy it. Yeah. And sometimes the title works with the cover. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I tell you. So you'll see that I think that's a terrible title on paper, on a blank paper, but actually with that cover, it really does look brilliant. Well, I I can think, and I'm just, you know, I'm not in the industry. I'm only, you know, I'm only a a humble writer. But there there are books I can think that, I mean, for example, the two breakthrough books, the the book that Ian McEwan made him into a kind of world star atonement. And I can still picture it. It's got this beautiful, I mean, atonement is, you know, it's it's kind of powerful. Young time. girl sitting on steps. So, yeah, sitting with on the, the steps. With, a, with, a, with a, it's a photograph, very, very um, highly, very tightly focused. Fo- fo- and it's there's something the, the title called Atonement, and which is and it's also a perfect cover if you know the book. Uh, and it's just I think that I, I think whoever whoever designed that cover should have got a hefty percentage of the. Yeah. Of the I mean, sale. we could spend days, weeks talking about covers and titles because I have got so many. 
many opinions. So many opinions. <laughs> but um, but sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I spend my my most of my day talking to publishers because they'll send us covers for my clients, or I get books sent to me from publishers that they've just bought, and they say, "We're going to put this cover on it," and I think. And listeners here will have heard me say this before. I just go, oh my gosh, like this is not going to sell. Please think about what you're, who you're trying to reach and what barriers you're putting up to a reader. Because yeah, yeah. I talk about it as a barrier. If there's anything that I think is going to put somebody picking up that book, then that's immediately, you've lost the reader. Yeah. Also, there's yeah. so many, yeah. life is short. There are so many books to read. Absolutely. People, you and know, really and what, yes, exactly. Yeah. So I, I've done some research about you, not too much because I've, I've, as I said earlier, I, I've been aware of you. I've known you for a while, and you've been so kind to us at Goldsboro. So I knew a little bit about your history, about coming together and, and starting writing. I know, Sean, you said that you've had books in your life as a child. But, Nikki, I was surprised because you said that you didn't have very many books, but your mum used to read to you. Oh, she did. So we there weren't many books in the house, but I used to go to the library every Saturday. Right. Long live libraries yeah. and get I six books out. Yeah. Um, but my mother, who who was not, she kind of left school herself at 16, but she was an ardent reader. And in fact, later in her life, when she went blind, she was saved by audiobooks. She just devoured books. And we used to come back from school from when I was when I, from when I was school age and just for like an hour or two hours in the afternoon. It wasn't even bedtime books. It was like in the afternoon she would read to us and she would read poetry and she would read novels, children's books, things that went way over the top of our heads sometimes. But And it, it was just, you know, all and all of her children just gobble books now. But you uh, and you said that you read to your children and your grandchildren. But uh, books have always been important to you both, and so and story has been important to you both. Yeah, I should say that Nikki was much more of a reader than I was. I mean, I did read that. I did read a lot. I went. I studied literature. But also, I grew up in a house where I mean, Nikki wasn't was one of these families where you weren't allowed to watch TV. (laughs) Whereas I was in one of these families where you got home and switched the TV on and watched for hours. And uh, and also, my dad was a film critic, so I was also. I mean, films was just as important to me growing up. Up as, right. as books, but you know, story, so, but yeah, story. Oh, so, so you know, I mean, of course, one. I think, I mean, absolutely, one of the things that that was really important to us writing together was that we were both, you know, we were both writing, but also both reading and passing books back between us, and always just thinking we lo- both loved this. What was good about it, you know, or or also or really interesting. I think this some was something wrong with this. Why didn't it? Where did it go wrong? Why didn't it work for us? You know, and, and the same with films. And and I think it's really. In, I think there's something always really interesting about picking apart that you know, trying to see how the machine works, you know, and where you know or why it's working or why it's not working. I mean, don't you think you when when you when you're kind of in the profession, there's that thing about reading where you read and you fall in love with a book and you just just lose yourself in it but at the same time there's another bit of your brain which is thinking where how does that fit together yeah. how are they doing that yeah. because that's also that's why i think read the, the whole big new thing of well, new, it's not that new now of readers groups is such a great thing because it's one thing to read a book but it's it's really i think it's even better you know when you've got i think talking about books is such a great thing also you're you talking know. about life when you're talking about books yeah 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 viscerally you're and how it affects by, the brain and yes, the heart yes. and, the, and the and the solar plexus yeah. and that yeah and do you remember what book it was that did that to you originally so i i've talked about danny champion the world was the book that 
physically changed me, the the book person that I became. Do you remember that one book where you picked up, maybe you had been reading or maybe you didn't, maybe there's lots of books that you would have formed you. But. So there are so many books that I read as a child that I then we read to our children and now we're hoping to read to our grandchildren when they come of age, um, which I kind of fell in love with. And the one I'll mention are all the Moomin Troll books by Tove Janssen, mm-hmm. these mysterious guiling beautiful little books but I would say the book that made me which I returned to over and over again which just absolutely changed the way I thought about literature was Jane Eyre I bet you like half the women you talk to say Jane Eyre <laughs> and that's about the voice of Jane Eyre this 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 kind of plain hidden woman with this wild angry voice and it's a voice that I, even when I think of it it sends a tingled down my spine and it's about that relationship that a writer a long dead writer in her case can have with a reader just speaking directly to the reader um yeah i'd say i've got i've got a couple of things i mean one, one is i mean there's no big surprise to anyone but the narnia books right. oh because i used to read, oh, read books true. and read them over and over again and um and actually i mean i think several of them are, just, are particularly good but the one almost the most relevant i think one of them is actually a thriller which is the uh no i'm gonna say well that i'm gonna say the, the silver chair the ah. silver chair has in the sense that it's got a very it's got a very very clever story where it begins with with these children children being sent on a journey and they're looking for four signs and and, the, and you're told in advance you're not going to recognize them when you see them and they don't because they they say they say you're going to have these signs but that when they come they won't be in the form you expect and it's the most brilliant Actually, we talk about that uh, quite yeah, a lot because we it's, talk about you see, that. it's that's a you model yeah. i think someone who's complained to read a, write a crime novel could do worse than reading the silver chair because it's incredibly well constructed and it, and it actually genuinely i mean the first time reading it like when i was nine I think it's one of the first times I've read a book where I thought, wow, that's really clever. You know, as a story, that, that caught me by surprise. Actually, and you then, could say that Jane Eyre is yeah. a thriller. Yes. I mean, yeah. it, then, it, it is and, a thriller. And then that's been more, with a... much more obviously, it's the Sherlock Holmes stories, which I just again read. I, there are bits, parts of them I just know completely by heart. And I read them over and over again. And I think that was part of the, that shows, you know, one of the revealing things, maybe, I don't know, I wasn't, I wasn't remotely conscious of this as a lesson, but it does show it's not just about the clever story. I mean, because you don't, you know, you know who, what, when you read it the eighth time, you know what it's, what it's about is that relationship between Holmes and Watson and the amazing setting of them in Baker Street and the, the and the, the, that view that both not just of the, the Victorian and Edwardian London and also that sort of get when they go off into the, tra- on the train out to the, well, so you know, it's the same by the fire and there's yeah. a wicked old world outside. Yeah. So, the, I mean, because I, I think one I've really, I think we, we both feel about the thriller forms. They're, lo- they're very particular pleasure is about the, the thriller form. And one is always the setting. I mean, you know, the great thrillers have just these really, you know, some pungent kind of, whether it's Los Angeles or Detroit or, you know, or, yeah. or, or, or London in the fog. Absolutely. And, you know. no, well, actually, I, when we're planning our books, we have like almost three parallel conversations. The first, obviously, is the plot and how to make it just gripping and as compelling as possible. And the second, obviously, is about the central character and all the characters around and that journey. But then the third is that, you know, where has it got to be set? And what does it smell like? And what does it feel like? Absolutely. And what's in the fridge? And I was having a conversation with a publisher from Romania at the weekend, and he was saying, I wish Romanian, uh, Eastern European Romanian books were bigger because there's some really great books. And I, and I thought, 
then there's got to be a way of us understanding Romania as a character because that's yes, that yeah, exactly what will, that's what will drive yeah. it. Like happened with Sweden. Yes, yeah, the exactly. Nordic Noir yeah. has done yeah. that because of the, yeah. the settings become the, the place, the yeah. character that the we're all The ice and cold and dark yeah. and, yeah. yeah. So now I'm fascinated because I want to read more Romanian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know, Romania. I Tell know. Tell me about Romania. <laughs> and, and, and do you get chance to read now or you are you... Oh, uh, yes. I mean, I think that... I I I've yet to meet a writer who's not a reader and it feels like an essential part of being a writer is being a reader and we read we read I mean we read thrillers and we read non-thrillers and we read fiction and not fiction and just all the time in fact we, just, I, we always have I was going to say we always have a book on the go each Sean always has like 30 books <laughs> I, I'm very, I'm very ADHD <laughs> reader he, so he doesn't have a bedside table he has a bedside shelf and there right. are all these bookmarks at page 10 and page 30 and, and my kindle and, and, and audio books yeah, yeah so you're big readers and, oh, um, yeah, I think but I think and I really think that I think that all writers, all the writers we know, I think are just, they're obsessive, not just readers, they're kind of obsessive readers because you just, you just have, you, you know, it's part of your oxygen, I think, of just knowing what's going on and being stimulated by things. Well, this is called Confessions of a Book Collector. And so there's just one thing that you have to do on this podcast. And if you haven't heard it, then I'm sorry because I'm going to put you on the spot, which I do to everyone. Mm-hmm. So you come into my confessional, and now you have to confess. There's one book in your library in your collection. Doesn't matter what edition. Doesn't matter what book it is. What is that one book that you have at home that if you had to leave and you could only take one book with you, what would oh. that book oh, be? My gosh. I know it's the hard question. Oh my gosh! And you can confess to me. No one else will know. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is going to sound very the the um the book I'm really obsessed with at the moment because uh, I've been, I'm just rereading. It's just been the James Joyce centenary, and I'm just reading the biography of Joyce. And I just, I think Ulysses is just, is a book that you just could read forever because it's... Well, you'd have to because you can never get through it. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> that, I mean, I'm, I'm no, <laughs> People, do you know, it's funny, it's got a reputation. And there's, you know, I'm not going to pretend it's that all of it is easy. There are, because there are one or two chapters that are extremely difficult and um, deliberately dense. But it's, it's a kind of, it's very, it's, it's lovely. It's lovely moving. I, some of the, I have this feeling that almost every book is basically, all, so every really good book, every book that works is basically simple. You can sum up as a sentence. And it is, I mean, you know, it's a very moving thing of a father without a son meeting a son without, you know, searching for a son without a father. And you follow these two people through the whole book, almost meeting. And then they meet, they, and they meet at the end, and it's extreme, very, very beautiful and moving. But it's the streams of consciousness, I think, is probably the most difficult to read. Some of it, there's a there's a one there's a famous, there's a particular chapter where Stephen Dedalus walks across a beach, and it's I think it's the third chapter. I think all, I think if you did a survey, I think about half of readers grind to a halt and no never go any further because it's so hard to to understand. But so when you get on to the Leopold Bloom, he's just a very ordinary man, and it, it's it's a very it's a, it is a stream of consciousness. But he's he's a lot of it's just it's really quite straightforward and very and very, very beautiful and he's 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 one of the most lovable characters in, in I mean, he's he's got very straight sexual strangeness about him but uh, but it's it's uh, and I, I think I've got quite far in it I've never finished it so people can judge there's me a so very much, very I've wonderful never... audio book of it read read right. by Jim Norton the Irish actor who does can do all the Irish accents so that uh, if you can't get through it, I recommend people listen to it because it, it's like music almost when I was at seminary I tried to read it and. Uh, priest said to me it's because you're not ready for it and i always i love i love that the thought that books are 
That's so yeah, true. That I is think so that, true. I think that you know, and different time you can read yeah. the same book, and it's always different at different times yeah. of your life. I think that's about Wuthering Heights. Every time I read it, I just think that's a completely new book. It's not a book that's that amazing. I've read. Before, I, but I, I, think, I, think, I think you have to. But I, when I read it when I was a teenager, it felt like a heady romance, and then when I read it later, I thought. No, he's he's like a he's like Fred West. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that people are talking about at the moment. Oh, sorry, no, no, go on. No. Is that it's great expectations because there's this big new version on TV, and I think that's an interesting book because everyone gives it to children to read. And I and then I, when I read it in my thirties, I suddenly thought, no, it's not a book for children. It's a book about being a when you're grown up and disappointed. It's about you need to be middle aged to understand uh, great expectations because it's about. When you, the things you thought were going to happen didn't work out, mm-hmm. you know. And I think there's quite a few. I think there's such an important thing to come to people. Right? There's some things you also. There are some right things I think you have to read when you're a teenager. People say that I haven't read Lawrence Durrell, the his trilogy, and apparently they say if you haven't read them when you're a teenager, don't try them because oh, right. you won't like them. Right. I've not read them either. But. No, um, but so you take Ulysses out with you? Yeah, you? that does. Yeah, and I also, do you know, it's you know, one's afraid of saying it because people think, oh, that's so pretentious. But it's not. I think it's not. It's, it's a it's a book about ordinary people. Everyone in it is more. You know, Joyce always said that. There's no one, no one in there is worth Great more than ten pounds. You, you're allowed to take that book. You're taking Ulysses. What is yours? So I am. Can I have two? Can no, I have one? no. You can't <laughs> even two. have a collected two. works. Or... Can I slip in the one I'm going to discard then? Can I just say? I'm t- okay. You can talk about books all the time. Okay. Absolutely. So I am having to choose between Middlemarch, which I've just finished reading for the, I don't know how many times I've read it, which I completely adore. And it's the most kind of intelligent, devastatingly emotional, wonderful book ever. And then the other one is a thriller, which is Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. And I guess I'm going to take Woman in White um, as a thriller writer because I think it's, I mean, it's just got this gothic, uncanny, atmospheric wonderfulness. I mean, there's the plot and there's the setting and the characters just... They're, well, they she's just, sort of this wonderful heroine, this new woman with a moustache. Yes, yes, and the and, wonderful, uh, and wonderful the, villain with mice in his pocket. Yes. And it just that it stands a like book. a foundational thriller for all thriller writers who've come after. And it's actually, mm. I think, it's been. I mean, we don't write books like Wilkie Collins, but that thing about trying to be a little bit uncanny, so being realistic but a bit uncanny. There's something else going on under the surface all the time. Well, it's kind of like a dream. Mm. The certain books you remember, like, and it's like remembering when you wake up and you're trying to remember a dream. Like a fever dream. You remember this woman just coming out of the fog, yeah. didn't she, dressed yeah, yeah, in yeah. white? It's oh. very... I, I love uh, The Woman in White, I, and I love gothic novels, and I, and I, everything that you've recommended, Nikki, says that you just love gothic novels. So <laughs> yeah, I do. Before I do. you leave, I'm going to give you a, a proof called The Good Liars by Anita Frank that comes out later this year. It's a brilliant, brilliant thriller set in 1920s oh wow well i would love that i'm going to give you a copy and i will tell you what i think i I know that you both have to go off uh for a meeting so i'm going to thank you sincerely for pleasure i could have i feel we could have gone on for hours well i I would have loved to but um, i'm under the under the strict instructions from your publicist that you have to go thank you so much it's honestly i you are the most loveliest couple in publishing i don't know anyone (laughs) Quite like you both. You're amazing. Thank you. Well, that is, thank that you. is such a nice thing to say. Goldsboro books, Goldsboro have been real 
very important to us. As yeah, well. and I we feel very, I feel here. very emotional now, and, oh, and well. don't want to say goodbye. <laughs> but <laughs> but <laughs> nevertheless, goodbye. Thank you Bye. so much. Subscribe now to be one of the first to hear our new series, and follow Goldsborough Books on socials to keep up to date with our latest news, and to discover who will be joining me on Confessions of a Book Collector, your new favourite podcast.